everyone, this is Viv and you're listening to the What Gives Podcast. Welcome back to Season 2 of the What Gives Project. Today we're sitting down with Carrie Kandrian, who is a PhD researcher, associate professor, board member of the Gay and Lesbian Medical Association, the largest and oldest association of queer healthcare professionals. And she's also part of the Lesbian Health Fund, which is committed to improving the health and wellness of queer women through rigorous scientific research. It is also the very last day of Pride Month, but Pride is forever, so great timing. I'm super excited to have you here, Carrie, to share the research, the stories, and the impact of LHF. Thanks so much, Viv, for the opportunity to, to be here and to talk with you about something I care deeply about, which is the health of LGBTQ women and girls. Awesome. So we all know how important research is to solving, you know, big societal issues and big health issues. But sadly, discrimination limits a lot of research um, that can help a lot of people. And we've seen this played out, you know, all throughout history in terms of research about race, um, the AIDS crisis. And there's just a barrier to researching solutions for people who are different. So I love that we are talking about health and wellness research today. And I would love to learn more about what LHF is doing for queer women and girls. And if you can set the stage for us in terms of the problem you are trying to solve and just the mission of LHF. Sure. So I guess I'll start with the, a little bit of background of LHF and then sort of talk about um, why it started and why it's so so needed. So um, it's it's been around since 1992. And since then, the Lesbian Health Fund, LHF for short, has awarded more than $1 million to fund over 120 projects that are really designed to improve the health and well-being of LGBTQ plus women and girls. And the reason it started, and it actually started by a few fiercely dedicated lesbian physicians who who really had a deep commitment to their own community's health and really questioned how research could actually improve their lives, their partners' lives, their chosen families' lives, and their patients' lives if they weren't actually included in the research. And so that was really the impetus to start LHF, which leads to the main problem, I think, around just in general LGBTQ health. It's it's highly underfunded. And the other reason is so much of the research out there is is not inclusive of, of actually LGBTQ communities. And if they are included, if we are included, the percentages are, are really low and we often get lumped together. So some of the studies will say that they include LGBTQ people, but then you look at actual numbers and there might be two trans or two lesbian. And it's just not enough to actually generate evidence and the data needed to actually address some of the devastating disparities that that our communities face. And so that's the big reason is there, there's just not a lot of research and even less research that's specifically designed by and for for women. It actually, they had they were a statistic from the NIH that only 6.5% of LGBTQ research funded by National Institutes of Health is actually inclusive of lesbian women, which is wow. which is really mind-blowing. That's mind-blowing. And I'm just thinking about the history of the AIDS crisis and how that was so underfunded for so long until it started to affect dominant population. Exactly. So crazy. So crazy. And women especially, I mean, that you sort of add on, you know, just just being LGBT, just fitting sort of within any of those categories, and then you start adding on any other minority identity, and you even become more more invisible and more marginalized. And so I think having this dedicated research focus is really 
is really what is needed to actually generate change and, and, and research needed to actually improve the lives. Absolutely. And, you know, since 1992, y'all have funded over 120 critical researches, right? Um, can you tell me about some of those findings that, that might be of interest to the general public? Yeah, so 120 in what LHF funds are, are are generally pilot programs, which are shorter projects that really have the potential to become catalysts for larger studies. And the, just thinking about the topics of what LHF has funded since 1992, mental health, health disparities, family studies, family identity, access to care and health services, trauma and violence, and then some additional categories. We have funded re- reproductive health, eating disorders, discrimination and stigma cancer, aging in older adults, minority stress, social support networks, health education, substance abuse, homelessness, people who live in rural areas, and, and even disability. So it's really a wide range of, of projects that have been been studied. And I was actually early on before I joined the board of Glamma um, and LHF, I was an awardee of this, of a LHF pilot. Grin and uh, mine focused specifically on older LGBTQ adults. And so I interviewed, it was actually during the pandemic, 31 LGBTQ women in Colorado, really about their health needs and as they age. Because I'm a huge proponent of, of these pilot projects because it's one, it just allows so many people who either don't have resources or don't have, you know, like a robust research team to actually apply for these grants get these grants and do important research that leads to leads to more opportunities. So I there one there well they can be two year projects. Mine was a one year project. I found out a lot by talking to to the women I interviewed. I mean, I would love to hear if I mean if the research is published <laughs> for one, um what are some of the findings that founded? <laughs> <laughs> they are published. I think one of the big and they were really, you know, it was really designed to find out just sort of what are their issues as they as they age and then what to do about it. So it was a qualitative study and some of the big themes really came out around just the impact that discrimination has and, and stigma as um, so many of these women age, particularly as they think about like long-term care or assisted living. Um, research actually shows that 75% of older LGBTQ adults go back into the closet. And it was this was super consistent with with what I found I found in in my own research of just this internalized stigma and fear of having to enter these communities, having to go back into the closet, having to not disclose that you're married, fearing you might have to share share a room um, was a big theme. Another another theme was just fears around hospice, particularly for the for the trans community. Um, a couple of participants talked about how they still need to shave and so how important it was to have nurses and trained hospice workers actually give space for people to disclose this information that they don't want to die with a man's name. They don't want to die with hair on their face. And that really matters for this community to actually be able to die with, with dignity and die as who they are. I think another, you know, a lot of them talked about just the difficulties of of accessing care based on horrible experiences in the past and really delaying medical care because of fear that they would have it again, fear that they couldn't find an affirming affirming provider that they could actually be who they were and and fear that they wouldn't, you know, that their care wouldn't actually get worse if they disclosed their identity. And then a, another big theme that actually was I think the the most impactful for me was really just the the disproportionate effects of not having brief and um brief. I combined brief and grief. Brief and bereavement <laughs> support. 
for same-sex couples was, I think, the hardest theme for me to really deal with because it is a big, you know, you think about just the complexities of navigating any serious illness and the complexities of navigating something like like end of life. And then you add on like not actually being able to grieve your spouse, not actually having your loss be recognized, um, not having like access. There's just so there are very few grief groups that are actually designed specifically for LGBT communities and particularly LGBTQ women. And so they are often forced to deal with their grief in, in isolation, which leads to what's known as disenfranchised grief when you really can't socially acknowledge a loss or actually socially mourn this loss. And so that was a big one that um, either a lot of participants feared or actually a lot of participants had experienced that one of them, particularly Esther, I've shared her story before, but they were married 33 years and um, she couldn't, that was her biggest fear. She couldn't say she was married while her wife was, was dying. I'm like tearing up just thinking about it. The work you're doing I don't think a lot of people think about, you know, like I think people think about marriage rights and being able to be in the hospital for any reason with their spouse, but there are so many other stories. Part of it too is just to actually expose so many of these stories that have been so buried for so long, but have really concrete effects on people's health. Another, another participant, she was actually, she was, she was, she was discharged unhonorably, if that's the correct, if that's the correct words. But she didn't get an honorable discharge is the bottom line, which means you then, because she was gay, so she was kicked out of the military, which meant she doesn't have access. She doesn't have any any access to VA benefits. And she's been homeless, in and out of homelessness several times. And it is so difficult to change to change this and actually have an honorable, honorable discharge, which then, you know, you can enjoy the benefits of being a veteran. But things like that, that just these just add on so much extra burden um, and disadvantage. I think that's what's so powerful too about LHF is it actually, it, it helps empower the communities that it's serving by really one showing like they're, they're worthy of being studied. I remember some of the participants and even some of the other awardees, like that there actually exists a foundation that is committed to lesbian health research is really for so many people. It's like, it's unbelievable because they finally, for the first time realize like we matter, we're worthy of being studied. We're worthy of actually having our lives be improved. And I think the other thing that's so terrific about LHF is it actually empowers the researchers too, who who are often LGBTQ plus women and girls to actually be able to really start their careers through these small grants. That's amazing. And how can we all fit into this? You know, the allies and the larger community and the listeners, what can be our role in in this, honestly, this fight? Thank you. I mean, just being part of this, your show, Viv, is really, I mean, just just talking about these issues, knowing that they are still very much real issues that need to be addressed, letting other people know that that LHF exists to either support or think about people who want to do research and letting them know that this is an opportunity for them to to apply. We have these. So every year we um, we award grants. And Glamma is such a wonderful organization, and LHF is still the only U.S. research fund that's dedicated specifically to LGBTQ women and girls to really be able to use rigorous scientific research to actually make a difference. Now, I just want to dive a little deeper and get into the specifics of some of the research. You know, what are, I mean, you've already named just 
a couple that are, you know, mind boggling, but what are some of the biggest unknowns and misconceptions standing in the way of good health for queer women and girls and just LGBTQ plus people? I think one of the biggest problems right now is we really don't have data on LGBTQ communities in large part because we don't actually collect sexual orientation and gender identity data or SOGI as it's called which is a huge barrier to actually doing anything about the disparities. And I know I, I keep talking about these dev- devastating disparities, like, and these are just sort of recent. Last, the American Heart Association last year reported that that still 56% of, of LGBT adults report, report experiencing some form of discrimination from a healthcare provider. And it goes up to 70% for those who are trans or gender, gender non-binary. Almost half of LGBTQ adults have not come out to their own provider, which really means they're being seen by a physician who who doesn't know a core part of, of who they are. And I've said this one before, and it always like it, it hits me hard every time I say it, but the stress of really hiding this fundamental part of your of yourself takes up to 12 years off their lives. So if we have a very good idea of, of how bad things are. And we know that discrimination leads to actual, you know, certain cancers, cardiovascular disease, anxiety, depression, and even suicide. And the thing now is actually being able to do something about this, which LHF really isn't, is encouraging actually to make a difference and and to address these disparities is a, has been a huge priority for, for us kind of moving away from more documenting of disparities to actually doing something about it. So part of the getting the data is really being able to sh- know just sort of what is, not just what is happening, but how to really con- continue to make sure that we're part of the evidence that's, that's being published and being disseminated. And I think the LHF funds across the lifespan, which I think is also really, really critical, that it's not just on on youth, but sort of throughout the lifespan, which is a, which is a huge need too. And I think to really be able to follow the outcomes over time is something LHF is also really interested in. I think the lifespan, though, is a really innovative thing that LHF has done to really fund sort of girls um, all the way to older to older adults. The research, it seems, coincides with a lot of other groundbreaking research that's happening in women's health and also mental health. I mean, we're just learning so much about mental health right now. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm you know, as you're talking, I'm just thinking about you know, what we've learned about how loneliness kills. Yes, I was actually going to bring up the mental health because a, a one that was recently funded is looking at that, is looking at loneliness and isolation and the effects it, it has. Another one on social connectedness and, and its effects on, on actual health outcomes. And what is great is that they just can take such a focused look at sort of one issue around a, a population like loneliness Trauma has been a big thing, the effects of trauma um, over time. What are some big misconceptions that allies like myself um, might not know, you know, some thinking errors we might hold on to? Yeah, it's a great question. <laughs> Thanks for asking it. And I think that is one of part of LHF's mission through this, this research is actually to help kind of humanize the, the data and help actually see the people behind the the statistics. And by that, I mean, I think there are, there is a lot of fear and stigma around the LGBTQ community for um, a number of reasons. And I think part of, of research and actually doing this research is a way of actually seeing that is not a community that, that is very scary, but actually being able to really elevate their, their experiences 
um, elevate their voices, elevate their perspectives is really a way I think of, of helping to really humanize this community and show them in a different, show them in a different way. I've actually done work with assisted living communities in, in Colorado and I would do, we would, we were training staff and um, part of it was, you know, we would go in and do these sort of informal conversations around, around the LGBT community. And there were all kinds of questions like, will, you know, will, if someone is gay, will they, will they have HIV? Um, will we have less gay people because we're eating organic food? And it's like, as much as I could unpack these questions, it really bothered me. And that, and I also was, you know, realized like they were really helpful for me to learn. Like, wow, I think so many people have serious misconceptions. We look a certain way, we have to act a certain way. And I think part of that, especially through the Lesbian Health Fund, is actually um, it is can be an invisible minority. You know, sometimes if if you are sort of coming in with these with these expectations of what I don't know someone looks like if they're LGBTQ. Is a, is a way of really sort of helping unravel the stigma. So I think research is one way of doing that. And I hope for allies, there's a way. <laughs> there's a way. And um, I'm just thinking about when you say the invisible minority, it's, you know, I think about how this population is forced to hide. And so even if there is opportunities for the um, dominant population of straight people to understand because the culture has been so harsh to the queer community, there's that hidden nature to that community. And there's just such a huge gap that we need to bridge. There's a lot of work to do and you never know. And I think that, I think that's really part of it is because so many of them do have this habit of silence. I still have it. And I, you know, I grew up in the eighties. Like it's still very scary to come, to come out and the burden is often always on the on the patient, on the LGBT person to, to be the one who has to come out. And if you, depending on where you live, depending on what you're facing, and not to mention if you are already sick and scared and, and tired, coming out is, is a huge burden to then have to do in a healthcare healthcare setting. And so I think just just sort of getting into these habits of of just saying, you know, who do you need in the room? Who do you consider family? Um, do you have a partner? I mean, these basic things are significant for the LGBT community just because it just gives people space and it doesn't sort of label because when you do enter these interactions and conversations with fear and stigma, if you then get hit with, you know, what's your husband's name or um, how many kids, you know, are your kids in the waiting room, you shut down really quickly. And I think those moments are really critical to just let people know, like, I'm okay with who you are. You know, you can trust me. Yeah. Really helps to break the habit of silence that so many of us have and still have. Awesome. And I think that was a great lesson right there. Just those few questions of like, how can I make you feel safe right now before we even open up to the conversation we're about to have? Like, how do I make this conversation safe for you? Let's start there. Exactly. It would go such a long way. And then it doesn't even require everyone, you know, the, the lanyards are nice, the pins and, and any signs and symbols are nice because it's like you do look for those to know like that you can be safe. But these questions also exactly like just set a whole different interaction for what's to come, and especially when the stakes are high, high with healthcare. Just thinking about the the future here now, what are some of 
Well, I know. So we're today we're speaking on June 24th, by the way, listeners. So it's it's a hard, it's a tough day for women's health. But in speaking about the future, you know, what are some of the challenges that we are facing? Some of the opportunities and lastly, dreams that you have for LHF. Yeah, I think it's so um I think so many people always say, you know, we have come so far and and we have come far. I it's hard to believe on June 24th that we have come come far because it does feel like we go we go back and forth a lot. Um and I think that's really the the challenge is to really really take this research seriously and really help coordinate it because it's so it's so needed and because I think the the rights and protections for LGBT Q people and communities are so fragmented. They're not consistent. They're still not a national equality act that really protects this community. The research is even more important because I think it helps really elevate um, these issues to in a way that maybe the legislation can't because there's so many states where, the, where a lot of this research is happening where they still can be denied care. They still can be fired for their jobs. They still can be denied housing. And so trying to really use the research as a catalyst for, for change and really being awareness and really doing more sort of on the community level and really sort of thinking that that might be a way of, of changing on a sort of on a cultural level and not waiting for the protections to come in place, but really helping people see the need, the need for change on the ground, I think is one, one big challenge. Yeah. What about dreams? <laughs> what about good things now? So many challenges. I was <laughs> Um, dreams. I mean, my big dream is actually that, that we could through LHF actually create a world where, where we'd all want to live in, where it all actually would be easy to, to access healthcare. It would be easy to face serious illness, not having to fear, um, hiding who you are, not, not fear having to hide who you love or, or who you consider family. That would be my big dream. I mean, I think the the protections are are a big dream, but I think right now it's really just being able to to be able to be who you are, be able to love who you love, and actually not have to worry that that would impact the care you receive mm-hmm. um, in any way. Yeah, and I know that you are a professor, so and associate. <laughs> associate professor, and also a researcher. So I would love if you can give us a lesson, some wisdom to part with. Yeah. Some wisdom. Well, I am a, I, I'm a social scientist and I, my background is actually in communication and I'm in, a, I'm in the division of medical, division of general internal medicine. So it's kind of um, a bringing together different backgrounds. And so what I've always though, I think the, the lesson is that so much of what happens, of course, around healthcare is clinical, um, but so much of what happens is is not. And really, the interaction is such a place where inequality can can either continue um, or actually get disrupted. And a lot of it can happen through the way we talk and listen to each other. And so I would really encourage, I think that's the role we all can play because we can't legislate the way people think and, and feel about these issues, but but we can change the way we communicate and listen in a way that actually gives people space, like Janelle, the trans participant who I interviewed to talk about her biggest fear was shaving her face, give people space to just start asking questions in a way that, that allows people to respond, you know, and not a binary category or not you know, an assumption led question, but really just just space to be able to be who they are, to to disclose 
you know, what information they actually need the other person to know to get the care they need um, goes a really long way and really just listening without prejudice or, or judgment. But I think really thinking about what we can do in terms of the way we talk and listen to each other that actually lets people feel that, that we're safe, that they can trust us, that they have space to really share information in a way that actually matches their, their life. Yeah. Goes a long way. Amazing. And, you know, my background is also communication in journalism. But on my end, I, I just think about how communication changes culture. And like you said, you can't legislate every change. But, you know, as everybody starts to open up to things like mental yeah. health, open up to differences, to open up to different communities and open up to themselves, honestly, like that can really change an entire culture. And, you know, the law always follows, right? I mean, today of all days, it's gone backwards, but <laughs> the law typically follows. And as sad as today is, I still have a lot of hope, right? <laughs> yeah, I mean, talking to you is very hopeful and exactly what you said. And I really think at this point, especially with what happened today, that changing culture, changing the way we, we communicate, giving people a new vocabulary is is really our best, our best bet. Yeah. We got a long ways to go. I, <laughs> I just want to say thank you so much, Carrie. I am so interested in your work and I'm probably going to have to hit you up again because there are just so many questions that I have that might, again, that might not have any answers to because, because we're just at the precipice of all this great research and I'm just so thankful to know you, to speak to you and just thankful for the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Biff. I'm really grateful for what you're doing and I really you giving us the opportunity to, to be here and talk about LHF. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, subscribe, and share with your friends. For more information, head to our website at whatgivesproject.com. Thanks for tuning in and we'll see you on the next episode.